You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello. And thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 60, Sand, Saltwater, and Oil. The war in North Africa, and by extension, the Mediterranean Sea, was to be Italy's arena. This was to be Benito Mussolini's rebuilding of the great Roman Empire, not to mention his justification for being considered an equal on the world stage to Adolf Hitler. But it was not to be a shared, glorious resurgence. This was to be Mussolini's parallel war. But Italy's waging of this war would reflect the leader's character. It would be opportunistic, but poorly executed. Mussolini would first allow Germany to weaken the British, and only then engage Italy's Mediterranean rival. And by June of 1940, that time had come. There's no cowardice in being shrewd in military matters. Germany had to fight Great Britain if the British would not negotiate. And by the summer of 1940, Germany had its answer. So now the two were engaged, and it was only common sense to ponder. Might Italy get her empire at a cheap price? Maybe the British would retreat to Cairo or to the Suez. They may even focus solely on their home island. Maybe the struggling British would negotiate for what they were about to lose, and gracious Italy would certainly consider allowing the British to retreat in peace, no matter what Hitler may want. This was to be an Italian empire. Since the end of World War II, much, or little, has been made of the Italian man's fighting spirit. But the coming war would show many Italian soldiers fighting bravely and tenaciously under Rommel. Men in any contest 
take their cue from the person standing in front, and Mussolini did not serve well in this capacity. And finally, Mussolini, being Mussolini, had it all wrong from the beginning, because Churchill, being Churchill, wasn't afraid to come together in a clash of arms. As fate or fortune allowed, the desert was the only place where a belligerent Churchill could come to blows with the access on land. And the British men in charge in North Africa and in the Mediterranean were equal to the seemingly impossible task before them. But more on them later. Although historians and those who participated in the Mediterranean or African War still argue over the value or importance of the fighting there, it simply came down to this. At the very least, the Mediterranean was an encounter theater of the war, because British and Italian interests intersected there. Mussolini wanted his empire, and the British needed access to the shortest route to India, and to the oil in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, which was discovered only two years earlier. The fact that Churchill would use this conflict to distance himself from Chamberlain's failed appeasement policy, and to gain U.S. respect, well, that was Churchill, doing what needed to be done and also recognizing additional benefits. In 1940, Hitler only saw the Mediterranean as a buffer, protecting any southern access to his European fortress. But as I mentioned in Episode 2, Germany and her military resources would be pulled south to save Mussolini's dreams and their partnership. And the unwinding would continue. Germany would come to North Africa to save the Italians as they clashed with the British. But seeing the potential, Hitler was agreeable to this adventure. Could he use this to tie the British down off of the continent? But later, when the U.S. comes into the war, its policies would be grafted onto those of the British. In fact, some think that Churchill outwitted Roosevelt into propping up the British Empire. But Roosevelt was no political novice. The time the Allies spent fighting the Axis in North Africa and the Mediterranean, the two countries, the Old World and the New, would come to learn each other. But equally important, they would work out tactics, weaponry, and audition future military leaders. And even before the war in the desert was over, Roosevelt had gained the upper hand in Allied priorities and strategy, and the U.S. would be the main voice in a post-war Western Europe. And although the Mediterranean theater was not the pivotal theater, it was crucial. After all, if the British early on had been pushed out of North Africa, their cause was not lost. But the potential upside was laden with enormous payoffs. A successful or even a contest that ebbed and flowed would tie down and spread out Axis forces. It also showed their future partner, the Soviet Union, that they were indeed in the fight. And of course, by the time of the Normandy landings in June of 1944, the Allies had the experience of North Africa, Sicily, and Italy. This would not have been possible without the war in the desert. When Italy declared war on Britain in June 1940, the Axis seemed the perfect partnership. The German army and air force 
combined with the Italian Navy. The Mediterranean should have been theirs by default. But only Britain saw the Mediterranean as a single geostrategic unit, a road that ran the shortest possible route to India. And their desire to hold on to India, with its vast resources and people, meant that the pathway, the Mediterranean, had to be controlled. By 1940, the British had been more or less the masters of the Mediterranean since the opening of the Suez Canal 72 years earlier. But all that was about to be challenged, as the world's greatest sea power was fighting for survival at home. Ironically, the Suez Canal was becoming less economically significant in the years leading up to the war. By 1938, not even 9% of the total value of British imports came through the Suez. But in that same year, a counterweight altered the area's fortunes. A group of naval officers, convinced of the militaristic and economic importance of the Mediterranean, rose to prominent positions. And they were led by the Deputy Chief of Naval Staff, Vice Admiral Andrew Cunningham. At first, their worldview that the Mediterranean was more important than the Far East was simply their opinion. But when oil was discovered in Saudi Arabia as well as Kuwait in that same year, their opinion became fact. Still, by mid-1940, getting that oil safely to the home island or through the Mediterranean Sea became a tricky thing. Many, many British convoy ships were lost to German U-boats as the war in North Africa started. Britain soon found itself having to get this precious commodity from the U.S. But that Middle Eastern oil, although mostly out of their reach, still had to be kept out of the grasp of the Axis powers, who would never have enough beyond 1941. What they did have came from the oil fields of Ploesti in Romania, through the Black Sea, then the Turkish Straits, then the Aegean Sea, across the Adriatic to Italy. But that was only the beginning. Piped into Axis tankers that had to get by Maltese guns and bombers to feed Italian and then later German armies in North Africa, Mussolini would lose over half of his merchant fleet in this endeavor. He would later lament, My illness has a name, convoys. The lack of oil would force the Germans to turn coal into synthetic oil, but it was never enough. Luftwaffe pilots went untrained, Rommel's tanks would run out of gas in the desert. The U.S. would also lose many convoy ships in getting oil to Britain, but they never suffered Germany's problems. When France pulled out of the war, the Royal Navy was fighting alone in the Mediterranean. But modern war had to be fought along all three dimensions, land, air, and sea, or victory was impossible. In this, the British had the Royal Navy to secure them, until the other two branches could be brought up to strength. The most ready for war of the three branches, the Royal Navy had seen improvements in the interwar years, such as no longer micromanaging their commanders, and later effectively using Ultra. Also at their disposal was ASDIC, or Sonar, incorporated with aerial torpedoes. However, their anti-submarine tactics were initially weak. 
as the now-neutral French limited their ships' activities. Different sections of the Mediterranean came under British or Italian control. Italy controlled the central Mediterranean, with their ships operating out of Sardinia, Naples, Palermo, Corfu, Rhodes, Tripoli, and Cyrenaica, or eastern Libya. This forced Cunningham, the leading royal naval officer, to split his forces between Gibraltar and the Near East, but he also had to fight to hold Malta. Malta was the only harbor between Gibraltar and Alexandria, safe for British ships. Of course, the tiny island was only 20 minutes flying time from Sicily. The Spanish, for their own reasons, allowed Gibraltar to stay in British hands. Having any influence in the western Mediterranean would have been impossible without it. The question that immediately followed is, why did Spain's leader, Franco, allow this? Franco was a simple man with simple needs, and he had what he wanted. Spain. He didn't have Mussolini's flair or Hitler's conviction. He constantly hedged his bets. As the Axis gained momentum, he switched Spain's status from neutrality to non-belligerency, and then took the international port of Tangier. But he did not move against the British, as the Germans wanted him to. Because the British had been supreme in the Mediterranean for a number of years, they were keenly sensitive to any apparent coming changes. So, as the international situation deteriorated in the mid-1930s, the Royal Navy looked around for another port there, besides the exposed Malta. It wasn't the best choice for numerous reasons, but Alexandria was selected. Again, another reason to defend Egypt in the future. Thus, work on Alexandria was started two years before, and even though it was unfinished, on April 8, 1939, right after Italy invaded Albania, the British Mediterranean fleet set out from the Valletta harbor of Malta for Alexandria. So, as war came to Europe again, Gibraltar was threatened by Spain, and Malta was threatened by Italy. The strategic position of Britain in the Mediterranean seemed hopeless, but it would get worse. Hitler wanted to support Mussolini in creating a Roman Empire. He even offered Il Duce 250 panzers to get him going. But Mussolini turned down the offer. This was to be an Italian enterprise. Hitler shrugged off the rejection. He just wanted the British tied down in the desert. The Fuhrer would not allow anything to deter him from Barbarossa. If Mussolini came back to his German ally for resources, he would get them, but only what he needed to survive. First, Russia had to fall to take the wind out of the British sails, and then together the Axis could finish up in the Mediterranean. Pushing the British out would hand over the Suez, the Middle East, and the entire Mediterranean to the Axis. But in the Mediterranean, Britain's resurrection would be born. And here's how. On June 7, 1940, in Jerusalem, Major General R. N. O'Connor, commander of the Southern District of Palestine, was ordered to report immediately to Lieutenant General Wilson, 
general officer commanding British troops in Egypt. During his journey, O'Connor considered the country of his destination. The British only had 50,000 troops in that theater, but the Italians had at least a half a million. They were scattered out over Italy's occupied territory, but still overwhelming odds. Added to this, the French, Britain's larger partner in North Africa, was not faring well against the Germans back home. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. By the first week of June, O'Connor saw the writing on the wall or at least, what it would take for France to turn the tide. And that was probably beyond their ability at this point. The next day, O'Connor, with his gentle, self-effacing manner, discussed the Egyptian situation with Wilson, who, in contrast, was huge with an impressive stomach held in place by buttons on his uniform. The discussion was short and to the point. O'Connor was to head to Mirsa Matru, 150 miles west of Alexandria, in the western desert, at the end of the British rail line and road. His new responsibility was to lead the western desert force in protecting Egypt from Italian forces. Getting up from his chair, O'Connor made straight for his new headquarters in Matin Bagush, just east of Mirsa Matru. It was an arduous journey, passing by the pyramids, along a long, lonely desert road that also went through Alamein. His headquarters was on the seaward side of the Matru-Alexandria Road. On the other side was the HQ airfield of the Western Desert Air Force. They were equally outnumbered and wondering what the Italians would do. That ignorance was mostly due to London being so afraid of displeasing Mussolini that active spying in North Africa was forbidden. Consequently, O'Connor only knew that he was vastly outnumbered, but nothing beyond that. We now know that across the Egyptian-Libyan border were 300,000 Italian troops waiting, just like the British, for a word from Rome. But what would that word be? War or wait? Everyone's answer came two days later. Mussolini announced that as of 1 a.m. on June 11th, Italy would be at war with Great Britain and France. This might have shocked London and Paris, but it resonated more deeply in O'Connor's new 
headquarters. As much as O'Connor concerned himself with his new command, his overall commander pondered his position and options. They were insupportable and extremely limited. Commander-in-Chief Middle East Sir Archibald Wavell's command was made up of nine countries and parts of two continents for an area 1,700 miles by 2,000 miles. In detail, his command contained Persia, Palestine, Iraq, as well as Syria to all of Egypt, Suez, East Africa, Cyprus, and soon to be the most bombed island in the entire war, Malta. Established in June 1939, when tensions were still increasing and war loomed just over the horizon, Wavell's responsibilities were that of a military leader, British representative, and politician. Upon taking his post, he was told to prepare war plans for his entire area of responsibility. Before then, not only were there no plans, the three services, the Navy under Cunningham, the Air Force under Air Chief Marshal Sir Arthur Longmore, and the Army under himself, were taking cues from their respective military departments. Fortunately, they all worked well together, if unofficially. To police and defend this vast area, Wavell had, at the outset, the unformed equivalent of two divisions, two partial brigades, an armored division, but only 65 or so tanks out of the normal complement of 220, 64 field guns, and a camel corps of 500 men. His HQ staff consisted of five officers. But complaining doesn't get anything done, and besides, Wable was not one to complain. He was not one to talk needlessly, either. He simply got to work. In the autumn of 1939, he had all the Egyptian ports surveyed, along with other Egyptian facilities, with an eye to turning the country into a large military base. This was his idea. London was still considering what to do. But that's what Wavell was there for. It wasn't until December of 1939, before his civilian masters asked for plans to house nine divisions there. Wavell's plans were already in a file waiting. One of his first acts was to ask his large map of North Africa and the Mediterranean, what was the most likely British holding to be invaded first? The answer came back, an attack on Egypt from Libya. So Wavell delegated protecting this approach to General Wilson, general officer commanding British troops in Egypt, and Wilson started making his plans. Wavell and Wilson's work was harmonious throughout late 1939 and early 1940. Wavell stripped what units he could from his scattered forces and sent them to Wilson. Wilson, by the late spring of 1940, had, at Mursa Matru, a force made up of the 7th Armored Division, also known as the Desert Rats, two regiments of the Royal Horse Artillery, and a few motorized patrols. Now that a force was at Mursa Matru, though a long way from what it should have been, it needed a leader. Major General O'Connor was selected, as his reputation for unorthodoxy and boldness was just what Wavell needed, considering the size of the force and its objective, 
to keep the Italians out of Egypt. Between September 1st, 1939 and June 10th, 1940, when Italy threw its hat into the ring, Wavell's situation had not improved that much. He was still on the defensive and would remain so until troops from the Empire or Home Island could be sent his way. However, for O'Connor, it was a different situation. He could keep the Italians out by waiting for them to come and then try to hold his ground, or he chose or. Going on the tactical offensive, the smaller British force crossed the Italian territory on the very day Mussolini declared war on Great Britain. Seventy Italian prisoners were taken, and the frontier wire was cut. This action made the local Italian command hesitate, blinking in surprise. Didn't the British know that they were alone and vastly outnumbered? A few days later, the Italian forts of Campuzzo and Maddalena were bombarded by armored cars of the 11th Hussars, along with a few tanks. And they were only there because RAF bombers had missed the forts earlier. On June 16th, an Italian troop column was attacked on the Bardia Road. Eighty-eight prisoners, including General Lastucci, chief engineer of the 10th Army, was captured. Forty Italian wrecked tanks were left behind. O'Connor was not present for the first day of action, but wholeheartedly agreed with what had transpired. His men were well-trained and regular long-service troops. His headquarters staff was small, but they had known each other for years and worked well together. On June 22nd, British fears came true as the French signed the Compagnie Armistice. The French Navy would now not be able to help box in the Italian Navy in the Mediterranean, and the Italian troops no longer had to concern themselves with the French to their west. So, those Italians that had been guarding the Tunisian border now came east to join the 10th Italian Army in preparation to invade Egypt, if the word was given. And Mussolini was ready to give the word, but readying the Italian invasion took time. Time the British used to continue harassing the forward Italian units. Major General Richard O'Connor was what the British needed at the time when all the war news was either about loss or barely hanging on. But he was also learning that war in the desert had its own special rules. You learned and adjusted, or you died. An army could not fight the ways of the desert. The men had to learn to live within its rules. Problems arose, and the British solved them, and went about their business. And one of the chief rules, besides everything you would want or need had to be taken with you, was that movement damaged vehicles. So by the end of July, O'Connor had his few tanks fall back. Now that ascendancy had been established over the Italians, the frontier could be covered by motorized infantry and by the guns of the 7th Armored Division Support Group. It can be said that O'Connor was truly the first desert general of World War II. The Battle of Egypt was about to begin. In Libya, Marshal Rodolfo Graziani prepared his invasion.
Greetings, everyone from Central Virginia. So I'm sorry this episode took so long to get out. Um, And unfortunately, I'm heading to the beach next week, but I'm going to try and get out one more before I go if the universe works with me. Um, I just wanted to let you know that the World War II app is now on iTunes. And you can see it there. You can get it for free. Um, It's for um, iPhone and the iPad. And I just want to thank, once again, Liam Douglas, who put it all together. He did all the work. Um, it's, it's got my name on it, but he did everything. And I just want to say, Liam, thank you very much. And you can find his work at www.liamdouglas.com. So, again, thanks. So, the next time you're on iTunes, please check it out. And Liam would really appreciate it if you gave it a rating and review. Um, so, please do that. I have to keep my Scots very happy. Um, Because this is a new subject, I had to go out and get a whole bunch of new books. So I just want to thank those who um, donated. It really did make a huge difference. So I'll just go through the list. And I have a couple more announcements, and then I'll let you go. Um, Alan S. in Sterling, Virginia. Hey, neighbor. How's it going? Thank you. Uh, Darren R. from Henley Beach, Australia. Thank you very much, Darren. Uh, Simon N. from Cambridge, U.K., Jeremy P. from Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates. Um, Edwin K. and his son, Seamus, from Roselle, Australia. I hope I got that right. Um, Hugh S. from Hawthorne, Australia. Uh, Hamish I. from Earlsfield, London, UK. David D. from Jackson, Tennessee. Uh, Ethan I. from San Diego, California. I was just out there. Um, Mike S., from Bucks, UK. I hope I got that right, Mike. Um, so that's it. Again, thank you very much. I've ordered at least 10 books with more coming, um, so I couldn't do it without you. Thank you very much. Um, don't forget Audible. I really couldn't find anything that dealt with the Desert War 1940 uh, on Audible. Maybe I didn't look enough, but I certainly tried. But obviously, as we get into 1941, there's a ton of stuff. You should definitely check Audible out or get what you want. I, I buy um, things all the time. So I'm going to the beach next week, um, but I'm going to try and squeeze out one more episode. I do have a surprise for you guys when I get back. Um, I'll get it together as fast as I can. I think you're really going to like it, but I'm, yes, I'm going to end this on a cliffhanger. I have something that I'm putting together. I really think you're going to enjoy it, and um, I'll give you more details as soon as it's available. So thank you very much. I'll see you as soon as I can. Hopefully I'm going to get out episode 61 before I go to the beach. I'm trying very hard, and I'll see you soon. Take care, everyone. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.